Recovery Elevator, episode 377. It was that what we call a moment of clarity. It Mm -hmm. was a moment of revelation to me that I was going to have a shorter end if I continued drinking. And that is when I started turning the corner on uh, trying to, to jump into recovery. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's episode, we have Jeff. He's from the Dominican Republic, the DR. He's 47 years old and took his last drink on December 4th, 2016. Now, listeners, here's a cool story about Jeff. I think it was the summer of 2017. I got a random Facebook message from him saying he had an extra third eye blind ticket if I wanted it. Since I love the movie Yes Man by Jim Carrey, I said yes and flew down to Denver for the concert. I remember it was pouring rain during the opening band. The rain was so intense that a lot of people said F it and they left. I remember standing under a tree freezing. I was only wearing a t-shirt saying to myself, is this really worth it? But then, like the parting of the seas, the clouds left and the sun came out. And I found myself standing front row at a third eye blind concert since a lot of people had left. Now, I often ask people, what's a memorable moment an alcohol-free lifestyle has given you? This was a huge one for me, so thank you, Jeff. Listeners, we've got a couple spots left for our flagship annual retreat in the forests outside of Bozeman, Montana. Dates are August 10th to the 14th. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. And before we get any further, let's hear from an awesome sponsor, Exact Nature. Exact Nature's safe and healthy CBD-based products are formulated to help you with the challenges of quitting drinking such as addictive cravings, depression, anxiety, and lack of sleep. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. Okay, let's get started. On episode 373, which came out on April 11th, I asked you for your favorite value bombs on this podcast, and I am excited to share them with you. There have been 377 AF rock stars who've had the courage, vulnerability, and strength to share their story on this podcast. When I think of my heroes, sure, names like Abraham Lincoln, John Wooden, Mother Teresa, my parents, and John Elway come to mind, but every single interviewee on this podcast is one of my heroes. So, let's do this. This one is from Shannon. She says, A favorite episode of mine is 3.30 Break Free from the Matrix with Trisha. And by the way, this is Trisha from Recovery Happy Hour. Great podcast. She's a rock star. She spoke about learning self-approval and to think about herself as her dog thinks about her versus people-pleasing. I replaced dog with cat over here, but same, same. People-pleasing has been a big problem for me that I used to think was a big strength of mine. Shannon also heard on a different episode that said, you have a certain amount of energy and days in your life, and it's my choice of what to spend it on. Another takeaway from that episode was, listen more and have less opinions. Less is more. Thank you so much, Shannon. This next one comes from Katie in our up group. She says, hello, Paul. 
I love all the episodes, but two episodes, 207 with Tom and 270, also with a Tom, really resonated with me. In 207, Tom is the same age as me, 50, has a young adult son in recovery, and has had numbness in his left four and five fingers. I heard his episode last summer shortly after joining Cafe RE. My liver enzymes were elevated, my fingers were also numb, and my son was in rehab. Now, my liver enzymes are back to normal, numbness has gone away, I have eight months sober, and my son is about to celebrate nine months. I also love Tom Top's episode. I too have social anxiety, so reaching out to others is difficult. Tom made me feel less alone. Love it. Thank you so much, Katie. This next one is from Michael P. Hey, Paul, I wanted to add my thoughts about the biggest value bombs from a guest on the podcast. He says, I really can't pinpoint one guest or thing that someone has said, probably because I listen to so many episodes and there are just too many to choose from. So my response would be that it's just not one guest. It's every single person who shares their story. All the guests give me inspiration, and I learn something new from each story I hear. Sharing your story and recovering out loud helps shred the shame of addiction. It made me realize that I'm not alone, and together we can fight and overcome this. Thank you, Michael P. This next one is from Craig. He said he loved Robert in episode 40. He just nailed it. And also Odette's revelation that she relapsed has been the most impactful. Thank you, Craig. This next one is from Rebecca. She says, it's hard to pick one, but I have to go with Stephanie from episode 370 who made the recovery elevator bootleg hat. <laughs> I love it. After getting sober, I realized I drank to the extent of blackout, two gallons of vodka daily. When I was sitting in treatment, I figured my only option was giving this recovery thing the same energy I gave my drinking career. I have been doing that since September of 2017. So all in all, the lesson I learned is recovery is different for each individual. It makes me happy that I have a community available since I live in a rural part of Montana. It's not what I can't do today, but what I choose to do for myself each day. I recover with a little bit of 12-step and recovery elevator. Now, at almost five years sober, I own a business near Yellowstone and I show up for myself, just like I showed up for my bottle. And if the rumors are true, Rebecca owns a coffee shop in Gardner, Montana, which is the northern entrance into Yellowstone. Thank you so much, Rebecca. That is so awesome. This next one comes from John, where he heard in episode 30 that this is not an intellectual problem. This is not how I would solve a business problem. And I'm going to put a stamp on this one. John, you can't think or rely solely on your intellect to quit drinking. I love it. Thank you, John. This next one is from Vishant. He talks about Neil from episode 308, where Neil says he constantly would wake up feeling thick and irritable after drinking. Vishant, that's not the way that I want to start my day either. Thank you very much for listening and thanks for the submission. This next one comes from Victoria in Ontario, Canada. She is referring to Catherine from episode 369. She said, Catherine from Colorado gave me a needed push to continue with my sobriety. Nothing in particular, just her entire story was like a mirror for me. Also, Paul, the story about you can have peace or you can be right literally changed my life. My fiance and I were very stubborn and we fought over many things with strong opinions. But when we realize that we're headed for an opinionated fight, we say to each other, you can have peace 
or you can be right. And so far, it's worked to squash our fight within seconds. Hey, thank you so much, Victoria. This next one comes from Melissa in Minnesota. Hello, for me, it was Tyler from episode 130. I found him so well-spoken and interesting to listen to, and both of us were high-functioning social binge drinkers. I connected with Tyler and his story big time, even though on the surface we seemed different. He, a hip millennial gay man in Texas, and me struggling to be a sometimes cool straight Gen X woman in Minnesota. The biggest value bomb from him for me was that if you're thinking about getting sober, just do it and lean into that side that says you have a problem instead of running from it. The way he expressed himself was very convincing and accessible. Thank you so much for listening, Melissa. This next one comes from Julie in Colorado. She says, Hey Paul, I started listening to Ari on February 8th of this year. I originally got sober in 2017, and this lasted for three and a half years. Unfortunately, I realized this go-around that two and a half of those years were spent as a dry drunk. Eventually, my shitty committee got the best of me, supported by the geographical cure. Fortunately, my field research only lasted 10 months this time. Finding Ari has been crucial, and I went back to the beginning and started listening to all the episodes. There are so many guests with a wealth of knowledge, but if I were to pick my favorite value bomb, it would have to come from Buddy on episode 67. Buddy speaks about service in a way that I don't think I've ever heard. You can hear his genuine commitment and concern for others rising through. I've always skirted the issue of service because I work in healthcare and my whole job is service. However, he blew this theory out of the water. When he talks about service becoming how he interacts with every part of his life, including his work, this hit a soft spot for me. I know that when I approach my friends, family, and patients with a heart focused on service, that the stress of helping others completely dissolves. It no longer feels like a chore, but rather is life-giving. Julie, I love this. In fact, in episode 379, coming out in two weeks, we're going to be talking about just that, service. This next one is from Cynthia. She says, Hi, Recovery Elevator. My favorite episode so far is number 310 with Sasha. She had several value bombs that resonated with me. Number one, be honest about your recovery with your significant other. Number two, exercise self-acceptance. Number three, be present. Number four, you are not your thoughts. Number five, you can help others by sharing your story. Thanks for listening and thanks for the email, Cynthia. This one comes from our editing ninja, Ty, who has been editing the Recovery Elevator podcast for nearly seven years. She says, there has been so many, but I remember Lisa from episode 42 saying, alcohol lies to me in my own voice. Thank you so much, Ty, for everything you do. And Ty, I spoke with Lisa last summer, and she's still sober and doing great. This next one comes from Kelly. And check this out. We've got another episode 130 with Tyler. I love it. This is what Kelly liked about that episode when Tyler said, Was it a question? Am I getting worse? Am I an alcoholic? Kelly then says, I still question if I am or not. But one thing that made it so relieving is if I'm questioning it, let's just always go with, yes, I've got a problem. Because, she says, if I don't think I have a problem, then I'm in for an obstacle course for the rest of my life, where I'm always trying to find balance. Kelly says the big hurdle for her was always questioning if she had a problem or not. But when Tyler said this, it resonated deeply with her. Kelly finishes with, I'm celebrating two years on Monday. 
Big time Kelly. I love it. Listeners, this last one is from Leanne. She says, hello, Paul. I hear you are collecting value bombs. Well, I have collected a lot from the RE podcast. First off, thank you for pouring your heart, soul, vulnerability, fears, joys, and the real you into the podcast and the RE community. I joined on March 3rd and my last drink of alcohol was 47 days ago. Big time, Leanne. She says, being part of Cafe RE and listening to the podcast daily has helped me stay away from booze. I'm heading to Bozeman in August and I cannot wait. Rad, I cannot wait to meet you, Leanne. Okay, she says, one of my favorite value bombs comes from 358, don't forget to sing your song. When one person is true to their song, it gives others permission to sing their song. I think I hit the 15 seconds rewind button 20 times when I heard you say that. I tend to throw up on people verbally. Throw up in the sense that I often have the, oh shit, I said way too much after most of my conversations. So when you said that, I immediately owned my song. I sing it loud, and I should be proud of it. It truly is the connections with others and the acceptance of myself that keeps me on the sobriety train. I would love to be on the RE podcast one day. Leanne. Leanne, well, for that last one, let's make it happen. I saved her email. Check your inbox in June. So thank you everyone for listening and thank you for your submissions. We are all just walking each other home. There are an infinite and one ways to do this. Just don't stop. And remember, nothing is ever static. Nothing is permanent forever. You may even hear your own voice on this podcast one day, either as an interviewee or perhaps as a host. Both of those have happened. Before we hear from Odette and Jeff, let's hear from BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market. Mental health matters, and as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You all know that I'm a big proponent of therapy so I highly recommend you check it out. Simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash elevator. Thank you, Paul, for a great introduction and Recovery Elevator. Please help me welcome Jeff to the show today. Jeff, how are you? Doing fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm excited that we will get to know you a little bit better. So just let us know, you know, when the last time you had a drink was. When was your sober date? My sober date is December 4th, 2016. That's the last time I had a drink. It's been a long time since December 4th, 2016, Jeff. How are you feeling? I feel so good. I really do. We've had some 
pretty dynamic changes over the last year and they are definitely attributed to my sobriety but yeah a little bit over uh, five years and all with the help of recovery elevator and cafe re for sure i love hearing that jeff thank you so much for for sharing and for just supporting us and can you let us know before we get to your story just a little bit about yourself can you let us know where you're from how old you are what do you do for a living what do you do um, as hobbies, you know, just a little bit about yourself. Sure, sure. I'm uh, 47 years old, and um, I split time between my wife and I, uh, Tammy. We split time between Colorado in the mountains half the year, and the Dominican Republic. So we have a beach home in the Dominican Republic, which we just purchased last year, and we've spent the oh, I would say the entirety of the last year sort of preparing to open up a concierge service for people in recovery who can experience a beach vacation without um, the triggers of alcohol being present. So quite a life change in the last year. We um, sold our primary home and we sold my business and my son is about to graduate college. So we're just trying to take this next step as sort of a, a healthy restlessness, I would say, not not a midlife crisis, but more of a, okay, I'm in recovery. Um, I've experienced all the benefits firsthand. How can we kind of open up a supplemental uh, style service to help other people in recovery kind of take hold of life in the best possible ways? Jeff, you know, what a great thing that you are doing. I feel like I've discussed this whole sober or recovery concierge idea a few times and just thought about how cool would it be if there could be a resource or an app or somewhere where you could check what type of fun activities for sober people are in cities when you visit, you know, someone doing the legwork of doing the research, maybe there's a sober bar since those exist these days or, you know, morning activities that a lot of people who are drinking maybe aren't doing. So I, I just love this idea. I mean, how did you come up with this? We're going to kind of go off script a little bit, but how did this even come up? Yeah, let's totally go off script. So we just had a Cafe RE member in blue visit us a couple of weeks ago. For me, I remember when I got sober, I thought, you know, I'm going to be some sort of sacrificial martyr that you know, sacrifice is fun for the sake of adding 10 years to his life. And I remember seeing a friend on Cafe RE posting a one-year soberversary from a beach in Hawaii. And it was just a mind scramble. I was, I was thinking, I was early in my recovery and I was thinking, okay, I'm, I'm trying to get sober so that I can add a few years to my life, but not to actually experience things that are fun. I, I thought that, you know, alcohol, we're conditioned to think that alcohol has some sort of a monopoly on fun activities, be it, you know, softball or a swimming pool or camping or all these things. And it was such a mind scramble for me that really when I went on my first sober vacation, it was an all-inclusive in the Dominican Republic. And I just kind of, I got there and I kind of hold myself up and watch Netflix in my room, just like normal, because there was a lot of drinking around me. There was the certain amount of anxiety that goes into, you know, leaving your hotel room and catching a cab and all these little things. And we know that when we're traveling or as people in recovery, when we have anxiety, 
or we're hungry, we're angry, we're lonely, we're tired. If, we, if those um, triggers end up coming in, it increases the chances that we're gonna have a drink. So, you know, as I got a little bit more seasoned in recovery, we started teasing out the idea like, you know, could we be the people on site kind of taking away the kind of like baby locks for sobriety, you know, like we're, we're the toddler gates to help people get them to the beach, get them to their tourist activity, help them find the appropriate condo so that they can experience what they should have learned to experience as fun all along without alcohol. So we're fortunate and very grateful that we're in a position that we were able to kind of pull the trigger last year and, and, and give it a shot. And we definitely took a risk by doing it. But over the last six months, especially with our friend from Cafe RE coming out a, a couple of weeks ago, she was just, she had, she said she's pretty well traveled and she said it was one of the top three vacations of her lifetime. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things we're not, you know, we're not the engine in recovery that we're not, we're not the mechanic that's going to keep, you know, your engine running smooth. We want to consider ourselves kind of like a supplement to people's recovery, you know, like the stereo system where they just add a little bit of cool to the, all the possibilities of them being sober and still having a fun life. I absolutely love this because like you said, being able to see things for people that can't see them yet, especially in early recovery, we we were all there where, you know, we think it's going to be such a such a sacrifice versus opportunity, as we always say here. And being able to kind of hold a different lens and not only tell them because, yes, people can tell us all day, you know, it is going to be fun and yada, yada, but actually walk you through experiences that can kind of validate this belief just makes you start believing in it a little bit more. So. This is awesome. I I didn't know you were doing this, Jeff. So I can't wait to just hear as it grows. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. It's uh, we're it's in the infant stages, and you know, like I said, we took a lot of risk to to kind of pull it off. But like telling you for the first time, or telling our other friends, they just the lights go on where they're they're like, of course, you know. And so it's a it's pretty exciting to share it. That's awesome, Jeff. And well, we'll get back to you and your story. So can you let us know, you know, what your relationship with alcohol was? What, what started this relationship? How did it progress? You know, when did you start questioning if you had a problem? And what got you to start quitting and to just chat with us here today? Sure. I was um, definitely smitten with alcohol when I was a teenager. Uh, Like a lot of people, their first time was you know, kind of an eye opener and felt like that warm hug that we talk about. But I was also um, married at a very early age, the age of 18. So I kind of put myself in a role of rescue hero where uh, my first wife was kind of taken out of a, a toxic household at the age of 18. And so I really put alcohol to the wayside to start being an adult at an early age. And I spent most of my 20s, I found that uh, my acceptance with my uh, first spouse was really as provider. And so I received a lot of validation through just working hard. So we we definitely attained a, a, lot, a financial status at an earlier age than most people who are, you know, getting out of college and finding their way. I think by 
age 24 or 25, we had landed in what would have been, you know, our lifetime household, which was a great home with a cul-de-sac. And later into my 20s is when I really started um, seeing alcohol as kind of a social conductor where everybody would pull out their lawn chairs and, you know, had mommy wine culture and you had, you know, your neighbors with their man caves. And it was some, somewhat of a, a social currency to be able to drink. And I think where I had, you know, the genetics kind of pre-wired in my early teens to, to enjoy alcohol. Um, it was buffered by responsibility through my 20s. But then once I attained a little bit of success and it really flourished in my later 20s with the neighbors, um, I really started taking uh, drinking to a level that wasn't just casual or social or moderate. And by my mid-30s, my spouse had dabbled in, I guess, what would be a a pretty significant betrayal and our our marriage was completed by the time I was 35 after 16 years so the combination of you know being a provider being a dad being a mom um, on most days I was the primary caretaker of my son I got custody of him I also you know in my mid-30s just went into a a severe self-pity party where I spiraled so that included an accident uh, that was alcohol related where I was the passenger and two DUIs. So I kind of I kind of had a woe is me sort of mid 30s where I thought I was doing all the right things that I had attained all of the social statuses that we were supposed to attain. I was faithful, you know, to my spouse and it just didn't work out and I crashed. So I had a, a pretty good spiral where most people would consider um, DUIs and jail time a rock bottom. It still took me another five years of uh, stubbornness to come to terms that I was a problem drinker, believe it or not. I was remarried at uh, 36, 37 years old. And uh, my spouse now, Tammy, um, she's just amazing. She, because I was because I got remarried, she didn't see a lot of the problem drinking. So in a way, I was able to hit reset and try and become a gray area moderate drinker. And through the course of about five years of our uh, initial uh, marriage, it just devolved into where I was drinking problematically again. So I really didn't stop drinking until I was the age of 41. So that was, you know, 41, 42. So about five years ago. You know, Jeff, I do want to say that um, thank you for sharing and, and everything that happened with your with your first marriage. I mean, you, you called it pity, pity party. And I, I, I see that because I have my moments of, of I call it like just like rebellion where I feel like my inner child is like, you know, I'm doing all the things right. I'm taking care of everything and everyone else and like all for what, you know, and I, I, I think we're hard on ourselves. I mean, I know you call it pity party, but also it was just like coping with a lot of pain and coping with a lot of distress of day to day carrying it all because you said, you know, being both the mom and the dad and the main provider, you know, that's a lot to carry right. and that's a lot of pressure. So, I mean, that's why we say alcohol works until it doesn't because it does kind of serve a purpose to kind of alleviate that 
felt like you were in a grind there for some time, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've heard through your podcasts and I would actually put myself right there is like when you're classically codependent, you, you put on all these identities for everybody else. You know, you're, you're who you need them to be before you even know who you are yourself. And that's one of the things in recovery is that you start finding out who you are for the first time. You start finding out the reasons and the whys and your eyes start getting open. But when you're in the thick of codependency and you're being everything for everybody else, at the end of the day, when you get your alcohol, that's when you get to just be you. It's like your own little secret that I get to be me now. And, you know, this is for me and it's an unhealthy coping mechanism, but it's one that I, I give a lot of grace to, you know? Yeah. You know what? And I think codependency is one of those things where uh, you can't quit on being a codependent just because you know what a codependent is. And just because you see <laughs> your behaviors, like it's, it is so right. hard because it takes so many years of, you know, that awareness and then trying to act differently and then realizing you're not acting differently. Like, I feel like sometimes this part of my healing, the codependency part makes me feel like a flip flopper because I feel like I've made the conscious awareness of something, but then I act the opposite. And because we're so hard on ourselves, instead of being like, well, I'm not always going to get it right. Or maybe next time I'm like, well, what's yeah. the point of knowing if I'm not <clears throat> going to act it into existence, but it's just really, really hard to get out of these roles. Like you're saying. Right. And sometimes I just call it like today I'm, I'm, I'm going to double down on my poor mental health. Like I know I'm going to go above and beyond being hospitable and taking care of somebody. And it's like a part of being hospitable is, you know, the joy that the intrinsic joy that we receive from it. So sometimes people are calling you sick because, you know, you're extending yourself too much. And sometimes it's bringing you joy to you know, pick up your kids from school or, you know, treat somebody to a dynamic vacation, you know, it's like, sometimes I'm just okay with it. I'm like, you know what, I'm going to double down on my mental health. And if I see myself straying into an area of, you know, poor behavior to cope with it, that's when I need to ask Tammy to check me or, you know, to check myself. I hear you. Um, I hear you. And, and you're, you're very brave, Jeff. So I just, I'm happy that we're talking about other hard things like codependency. And, you know, you said that when you met Tammy and when you entered your second marriage, you were kind of able to fly under the radar. Were there any moments during that progression where she pointed your drinking out or how did you present yourself to her? I guess sometimes when we enter a new relationship, we're like, oh, like this is, this is me. Like how, how was that transition from the old relationship to the new relationship while still trying to protect your drinking, but not drinking as badly as before. Yeah. She here's, here's the thing. When I met, <clears throat> when I met her, I was undergoing some DUI consequences. So I had a rain on my drinking because it was mandated by the state. So what I looked to her was a little bit different than what was going on in my insides. And so it was somewhat dishonest from the very beginning. There were moments where she pointed out that I probably took my drinking too far. And there were also moments where it was path of least resistance, where she would try and keep pace with me. And so even in the first five years of marriage, there was like, 
you know, we were having a blast. We were like newlyweds. We had all the excuses like we deserved it. We had, you know, former partners who uh, weren't very, you know, equitable with us. And we were having, we were calling it the extended honeymoon phase. And so there were moments where she was okay with it. There were moments where she definitely scratched her head and pulled me aside and goes, you know, if you didn't remember what you said last night, how, you know, how ingrained is this alcohol thing for you? So it was an open relationship to be able to talk about these things, but we were also navigating it under the fly of some, you know, state mandated consequences. At the end of what I would consider my gray area drinking period, you know, she's the only one that I could turn to, to, to really trust my truth. And she's embraced my truth every day since she's been my, my biggest champion. Oh, that makes me so happy because truly it's hard when things change, especially if you were having fun. So I just also feel like for me, also having a partner who's been with me through a lot of my chapters, just knowing like, no matter what, they're still going to be there, obviously with boundaries of what that no matter what means, but in terms of like, no matter what version of myself, you know, how the wholeness component, because for me, I feel like I haven't, hadn't really trusted my husband to see a lot of parts of me that I didn't even want to see either, obviously in fear that, you know, rejection and all the things that as humans we can connect on, but just having someone who truly has gotten the 360 view of you and continues to be your best champion, you know, that is what we all deserve. So just tell her that I'm, I'm grateful for her. (laughs) (laughs) She's the best. And you're right. It's terrifying. You're, you're sitting there wondering, are we the same? Are we going to be the same people when we're not drinking? Are we going to still have fun times? Are we going to play cards? Are we going to listen to music? Are we going to have sex? You know, so many things are tied to those best moments when you're drinking that it's absolutely terrifying to, to tell your partner that, you know, you're not, that you, in, in your core, you don't feel like you're going to be the same. Yes. You feel like you're going to be this boring, apathetic, human being that they're just going to have to tolerate from now on. And she'll be the first one to tell you that, you know, I'm more entertaining every measure of the day instead of just that 8 p.m. time when it used to turn on. And so, you know, I'm, you know, I'm whistling during the day. I'm singing a a hacky song, you know. Um, I didn't think I would be that person, but, you know, it just takes a little bit of time. Yeah, a lot of time and and courage and for me and I and I know we've we've heard this with other guests. I I do seem to be <laughs> I hate saying this but I am a little bit more rigid when I'm sober. Like I am one of those people that turns a little bit loosey and and can like fully relax. I'm like hardwired. I'm always waiting and hyper vigilant. What's going to go wrong? What's the other shoe going to drop and and it was scary for me to enter sobriety because I just know that about myself that I will actually, it's not that I think that I'll be boring. I just know for a fact that I am more rigid and that I've had to practice just relaxing and taking a deep breath and it's okay. Like that doesn't really come naturally to me always. So it, it, it ends up being very scary when, you know, there's people around you who have seen you interact around the world in certain ways. And all of a sudden, you know, that's going to change. So I think it's just very, valiant valiant i don't know if i'm saying that word but very brave (laughs) (laughs) to just actually go for it and you know jeff you said you know there was a shift between like 
great area drinking. I had it to kind of it going south. The, how were the wheels starting to come off or what kind of progressed? How did that show for you? You know, towards the end of my drinking where I was trying to maintain moderation, I had a really almost, I would say, miraculous appearance in the hospital where we were visiting my stepdaughter who was in the ICU. And I had put myself in the hospital about five years prior due to drinking. I was a passenger in a car. Because I was the passenger in the car and not the driver, I, I never, you know, absol I never maintained a, being the responsible party for putting myself there. I always, I always thought it was somebody else's fault. But I knew deep in my core that had I not been drinking, had I not wooed another driver to get in the car. And when it came down to me quitting drinking, I had seen my stepdaughter in the hospital and she was in the ICU. And I was walking because I'm the stepdad and I was trying to give everybody some available space. I walked in with eight coffees in my hands in a tray of four in each hand. And in my pocket, the beginning of Let's Go Crazy Prince started playing the song off of my phone, Dearly Beloved, we are gathered here to get through this thing called life. And I can't stop the message on my phone um, because I'm holding these coffees. And yet I'm standing there being an obstruction, what I believe is an obstruction to everybody who's sitting in the ICU waiting room. And we all sat around and we were like, um, maybe you should go in and talk to her and play some music. I'm like, well, I'm not going to play that song because it's all about, you know, getting crazy and going nuts before we die. You know, I was like, I don't know what's going on here. But um, I went back into the hospital room. And when I saw her, I really realized that <clears throat> I had put myself in that same situation where everybody was standing over me, worrying about me, wondering if I was going to pull through. And being the classic codependent who never wants to lean on other people, I kind of saw what I was doing to other people by um, maintaining this horrible, you know, relationship that I had with alcohol. And that was really the moment. I did not want people being towards the end of my life where they're saying, you know, that Jeff was a good guy, but too bad he couldn't, you know, lick that alcohol thing, you know. Um, for all the things that I feel like I've done well as a human, um, I didn't want that to be the finding defining factor of, you know, why I didn't extend better days. So it was that what we call a moment of clarity. It mm -hmm. was a moment of revelation to me that I was going to have a shorter end if I continued drinking. And that is when I started turning the corner on uh, trying to to jump into recovery. The more I interview people, the more I realize that what really matters, actually, I shouldn't generalize, but what for a lot of us matters and really moves us is those, that clarity moment versus the, the rock bottom. You know, I know we have these categories for these moments, but I just feel like it's these moments, like the one you just shared so vulnerably that are the ones that really change something inside of us, whether or not we drink again or not, but there has been something that you hadn't seen before or hadn't felt before that just comes with those clarity moments. And most of the times 
they're not really linked to the rock bottom or from what I hear in these interviews. So it's just very interesting to me and just speaks for, you know, all of the sayings of it's like until you're ready and nobody can make you see until you are put in a moment where you can see it. So it's just, it's neat. Correct. Yeah, you couldn't be more correct. If if stubbornness and selfishness are attributes of people who suffer with alcoholism, then a rock bottom isn't always going to do it because all you're going to do is find a way to fight through that moment and exactly. not let that moment tell you what to do. It's when you have an awareness, you know, of just your own vitality or lack thereof when it comes to, to drinking too much. So you couldn't be more correct. Yes, I feel like we are yeah, stubborn and we want to fight back and we don't want people to tell us what to do. And if that's one of your attributes, then yeah, then then the rock bottom moment is is not going to be enough, unfortunately, for for a lot of people. So how did you start on this path of recovery, Jeff? What did that look like for you? And how was that first chapter of your recovery? First chapter, first day of my recovery, um, I should say the day prior the the day I had my last drink, it was about midday on a Sunday. And I knew I had drank enough the night before that I was probably still still had some in my blood chemistry. And I, you know, with if you drink that much and you have a fog or a haze or, you know, gummy eyes, I was driving and I realized that I was if if I was to get pulled over, I would probably be, you know, hot. I would probably have alcohol in my system. And instead of this is this is stubbornness 101. Instead of me you know, getting off the road, I considered driving myself to the police station. And in that moment, I realized what I was wanting somebody to do is help me because I had more freedom when I was in trouble and they were maintaining my sobriety for me than I had being free to drink. And so in that consideration, I pulled over, got my wits about me, and just another moment of clarity was like, if I was going to place myself into the care of people or the state that don't actually care about me, maybe I should place my my truth in the hands of my wife and see if she was actually invested in, in helping me. So I made it through that day. The next, that night when I got home, I told her, I'd really like to talk to you tomorrow. Um, she thought she was nervous. She thought it was going to be something, you know, she was very concerned. And uh, the next morning, I told her that I needed to, to give uh, not drinking an honest attempt at, you know, and I needed her help to help me through it. Um, I started listening to Recovery Elevator that day. And I think Paul was at about 90 episodes. So by the time December was over, I had caught up with Paul. So I'd listened to about 90 episodes in 30 days and just started filling my brain, um, proactively training my brain with good information to counter the lizard brain that constantly wanted to pick up a, a bottle at every turn. So that was the start for me, for sure. Oh, that's amazing, Jeff. And what continued to help you gain that momentum? You know, you, I know you had immediately went for built-in accountability at home, which is a, a great start, but I'm sure those first few weeks were challenging like they are for most of us. You know, what, what helped you get through the reps and what helped you stack those days? 
You know, it was really, I, I think someone laughed at me the other day. I said, if stubbornness was the cause of me not putting the bottle down for so long, then stubbornness was going to be my attribute in recovery. Um, so part of it is that I'm just really stubborn. If I said I'm going to quit, I've only, thank God, I know this isn't everybody's experience, um, but thank God it's the only time I tried to quit and I was able to make it stick. But it's because I'm really stubborn. Um, part of it is outward accountability. I, I told my wife within two weeks, I told my son within 30 days, I told Paul. Paul said, hey, let's get you on a podcast. So at 55 days, I had recorded a podcast with him, which means I had to wait another two weeks for the podcast and another four weeks for it to come out. And so, you know, I had accountability measures along the way. I was definitely stubborn and it took a little bit of time to start seeing data, good data. And once I started seeing good data, I, you know, I don't like that phrase that when people say, you know, not drinking doesn't get easier. You just get used to how hard it is. That's not true. It gets easier. So if people are out there and they think that this doesn't get easier with some good data, some good experiences, some having fun without booze, you start retraining your brain. And as soon as you start getting that good data, it really does get easier. I love this. I love this because it does get easier. And that has been the case for me as well. I want to know what yeah. good data, what's our, what are a few examples of good data in your mind? What started getting good and what was making you feel confident? Boy, you know, I mean, they're, they're simple things. If, if you're, if you're riding down in the car and you start catching yourself singing every bar to public enemies, you know, fight the power, and it's midday at two o'clock on the afternoon, and you realize that you would have only been that goofy Friday night around your buddies, but you're doing it during the day at every measure of your day, you know, having joy, being silly. That's good data. You know, accomplishing your first vacation and then walking away going, you know what, I did five more things than I would have done had I been, you know, inebriated laying on the beach and waking up late. You know, when you start collecting those moments, it not only empowers you, you actually do start retraining the synapses in your brain to go, you know, you don't expect having liquor at the end of a softball game. You just had fun playing softball. You know what I mean? I love this. Yeah, you you start having different responses to everyday occasions. Like you said, just surprising yourself singing or after a long day of work, you don't immediately think, you know, like a beer would be nice right now. I that takes time and like you said that that takes doing it and getting confident and repeating it and you start gathering data. I love looking at it that way. I think that this data is great leverage. Like we should leverage all of these feelings for when we do get triggered or when we do go on a vacation and we're thinking twice, we're like, oh, remember that time I went to Seattle and we did all of those things. And if I had been drinking, we'd done half of the things. So I just, I love how you're explaining it and how really we can help ourselves as we are stacking this time. Yes. What do you normally do, Jeff? What did you do at the beginning or what continues to serve you if you have a craving or just a really uncomfortable moment that you do feel like your body's trying to cope with or get you out of? If I have, if I have a trigger moment, it's, 
I find that that's significant enough to talk to my wife about it. I don't have many uh, triggers. I think I've worked through, you know, when you first quit, the, the thud that comes on the TV every time you boot Netflix, that alone is a trigger that's just like paralyzing, right? But you yeah. do it once, you do it twice, you do it three times. And these, you know, five years down the road, if I have a trigger, it's something significant enough that I need to pull my wife aside and say, hey, you know, I'm kind of going through this and I don't know why I'm so unnerved about this situation, but, you know, it's leading me to not want to be here, to want to escape. And that's a dangerous place for me to be in. By trade, I am a writer. So if I have a moment that's triggering or it has caught me, you know, off guard, a lot of times it's me just writing out what it is because usually I can come up with a pretty decent anecdote that's going to be helpful for me or somebody else down the road. So writing's a big deal. Uh, Reaching out to our online recovery groups are huge. I don't need to do it as much as I used to by way of the triggers not being as, as repetitive as they used to be, but always dropping a line in Cafe RE when something's going on, you're going to have a handful of people who have experienced something similar. So you get really good positive feedback. I love that. I feel like for many of us, talking to someone when we're triggered is extremely hard. So the fact that it is one of your go-tos is something that you've been able to do with your wife from the beginning, I think is is amazing because, I mean, you know, there's that phrase, I don't know if it's a AA, I, someone said it of, you know, when you're struggling and you know you want to talk to someone, but it feels like the phone is like a million pounds, you know, and I remember my dad telling me that there were so many nights where he wanted to talk to my mom and he remembers being like laying in bed next to her and wanting to just turn around and say like, I need help, like to say something. And he just couldn't for so long, you know? So I just love that, you know, it's different for all of us. And I love that for you, it does seem to be a more organic go-to response of you when you're struggling to just turn around and go to her. It just speaks to your guys' partnership, but that that's awesome. Thank you. All right, Jeff. Well, we have reached the rapid fire round. So I have a few questions for you. And if you could answer these in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? I am. What is an unexpected perk of sobriety? Um, Unexpected perk is probably what I was saying. Like, I mean, I have a home in the Dominican Republic. So (laughs) if there was anything, you know, less expected than that in my life. I'm a 40 work 40 years and get the golden watch type of person. And so for me to be able to drop everything and move to the Dominican Republic and start this new journey, that that's a huge unexpected perk. I would have never guessed that five years ago. I love that. If you could talk to Jeff on day one, what would you say? Be honest. I think one of the biggest things about codependent people is they're too afraid to trust other people with who they really are. They'd rather be what they need them to be. And um, that lack of honesty is what really tears us up inside and we want to escape from at the end of the night. So true. What would you say to your younger self? I would probably say the same thing, to be honest. I don't think anybody in this life especially people who suffer from alcoholism, know what a gift honesty is. Being honest 
if you're honest, you open yourself up with people, you open your heart, it's risky. But anytime there's a risk and you can step into that and be courageous, you're going to have a good payoff at the end. What's your favorite ice cream flavor, Jeff? It has to be the Blue Bunny Bunny Tracks. Hmm. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? I would say because they don't believe it right now, that they are worth it. They're worth a profound better. And if they were to be honest with themselves, they know that drinking and succumbing to it time and time again isn't their best life. And so they are worth it. They need to know they're worth it. And that really, really profound things and dynamic things can open up in their life if they stop. Before we depart, can you give listeners your own, you may have to say adios to booze if line? You may need to say adios to booze if when a state patrol officer passes you on the left, you raise your glass up to you him because you know you're in his blind spot. Oof, haven't heard that one before, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Uh, so many wise words and so much vulnerability. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I can't wait to air this with everyone. Uh, thanks so much. And thank you for all you do for our community. I, we couldn't do it without you. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Have a good day. All right. You too. Very well, Team Ari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to bring to the show something that I shared on one of our RE newsletters. We do have a newsletter in case you want to sign up. <laughs> but anyway, I was sharing that recently one of my most used and preferred mantras is I can handle this. I feel like when I think about mantras, even just the word mantra makes me think of Buddha and being zenny and meditating and this like lotus pose. So I feel like mantras are usually very fancy and sophisticated, but sometimes what we need is just something that is simple and clear. And to me, the phrase, I can handle this, does the trick. You know, sometimes I feel like I am so full of overwhelm that I get paralyzed. I don't know where to start. I don't know if I'll be able to do this, if I'll be able to get through a craving, if I'll be able to stay on my boundaries, if I'll be able to be vulnerable and share my feelings, if I'll be able to say no. I don't know if I can handle it. And this phrase just reminds me that I don't have to have it all figured out and that I can just handle this, whatever that is, in that moment, I can handle this. It reminds me of my strength and it's just simple. So I just wanted to share that. You know, if anybody needs to hear this mantra today, if you need to keep it close, just tell yourself, I can handle this this week as you're feeling overwhelmed or inadequate maybe. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trust
thinking.